The reading of the Scriptures from Isaiah 57, verses 1 to 13. I invite your hearing of God's holy word in faith and in joy, for the Lord has spoken. The righteous man perishes, and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away, while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys, under the clefts of the rocks? Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. Whom did you dread and feared so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. The text this morning is a very uh, sharp contrast. Sometimes it's one of the best ways to learn. To learn the stark differences between uh, two things or two people or two outcomes in life. And so this morning, there's a contrast between the righteous and the wicked as to their lives, as to their deaths. And of course, the contrast comes uh, to break upon each of us uh, that we might uh, be numbered uh, among those who are blessed of God. Uh, our text is perhaps a reason as to why the nation will go into captivity, uh, but it also antip anticipates, pardon me, their failure in rejecting the servant son from which God will act uh, to effect uh, in time restoration and creation. 
We begin with the righteous man. The contrast of the righteous man and the message that God will bless him with the greatest of all success in life. Uh, Verses 1 to 2. We begin with the stark reality that his death goes unnoticed. The righteous man perishes and no one takes it to heart. Uh, It's as if... uh, The world, by and large, has no notice whatsoever, the righteous man. Uh, But, of course, God notices. There's something of description of those who do not notice the death of the righteous man in chapter 56 and verse 12. Let us get wine, let us drink heavily of strong drink, and tomorrow will be like today, only more so. I mean, they're too inebriated to notice the death of a righteous man, or they don't care, or perhaps uh, they're given over to... Uh, other forms of uh, chemistry. Again, I don't have a clue, but by and large, the righteous man dies and no one seems to know, much less care. Uh, they're indifference, no big deal. Uh, the parallel in the text is uh, the devout men are taken away. Again, it's parallel to the fact that uh, uh, they die and uh, no one uh, understands I translate the sense of understanding as no one discerns. Namely, something radical has happened. A man has died. A soul has been dispatched into eternity. It's the great lesson of Scripture that life is more than a biological event. All of us, righteous or unrighteous, have souls. And the soul will someday enter eternity. And that's one of the great lessons of the text. And the wise man discerns the differences in death, and he makes his way accordingly. Something something of a a challenge, I think, uh, in this text, that all of us who are alive should on numerous occasions think about the end or our death and what it will mean and where the soul or the spirit will go. I'm very fond of uh, uh, the Englishman, was a curate in St. Paul's Cathedral uh, in London, therefore he was Anglican, but he's well known as a poet, John Donne. He writes this famous poem, For Whom the Bells Toll. He's lying on his bed sick, and he hears the tolling of bells in all the churches all across the city of London, and he begins to think about death while he still has life. Uh, and he writes those famous words that perhaps you're aware of from your own ninth grade English class studying English literature. Therefore, never sin to know for whom the bells toll, they toll for thee. They're a reminder that we're all going to die, that our spirit and our soul will enter into eternity. And so it's very proper to think about death. Isaiah says the righteous man dies and no one seems to care. They ought to care because an incredibly important event has occurred. A soul has entered eternity whether righteous or unrighteous, and we ought to give a thought to it before we die. We don't think about death in our culture. I'm not so sure we shouldn't spend a lot more time thinking about it because it's an eternal event. Uh, it is it is an event that one can never recover from. You can never say, oh, but I've got a mulligan in heaven. There are no such things. The author of the book of Hebrews says it is appointed unto man and wants to die, and after that, the judgment. 
So it is fitting, I think, that when we listen to bells toll or the sirens race to a home where someone is deathly ill, well, we see a funeral procession that we ought not to stop and think. What about my soul? Where is it going? Where will it land? Where will I spend eternity? The phrase in the New American Standard of uh, the righteous man, the devout man, is literally men of loyal love to God. That they are loyal to God. That they have lived a life in loyalty to the one true God of heaven. I'm at that stage in life, I think I've told you on numerous occasions, where I spend a little more time reading obituaries. Just as a reminder, how will mine read? What will people hear, think, ponder upon? And so I read the standard refrain in Oklahoma. He loved his family. That's a wonderful thing. And then generally he loved his Sooners, or Cowboys, as the case may be. He loved this and that, this person and that person. Eventually my eyes want to fall upon the reality that this man loved God more than himself. You don't often read that. But it's a way to think about the death of a man or a woman, that their loyalties are important, because what they give their lives to and their hearts to and their soul to is radically important. Because once they cross that great threshold, there is no return. The text here doesn't make any mention of the cause of death. Maybe it's persecution could, of course, very well be persecution in light of the righteous man uh, because uh, the righteous man will be persecuted. It may be natural causes, maybe an accident. really makes no difference. The death of a righteous man is of profound significance. Isaiah frames it in this way. He is taken away. He is taken away from evil. The word in the Hebrew text is literally evil. The evil can no longer get at him, cannot touch him. Throughout his long life as a Christian man, as a man loyal to God, it could never touch his soul because God encases our souls in a tomb in which we are totally and radically protected. Satan can get out our bodies, but he cannot get out our souls. The angels are dispatched to guard us and to protect us all throughout our journey into eternity. It's a great reminder of what it means to be loyal to God because God gives us loyalty in return. In the fact that he is removed from evil, his destiny is now irreversible. What a great reminder to the Christian man, the godly woman, who leaves this life and whose uh, soul is dispatched to heaven. It's an irreversible event. I love the text and the blessing of the book of the Revelation, chapter 20 and verse 6. Blessed and holy is the man who has a part in the first resurrection. Over him, the second death has no power. It's really one of the greatest promises of all of life that as a Christian man or woman or boy or girl, the second death, the most terrible event of all time in history, cannot touch you because of the sovereign protection of a glorious God. 
More particularly in verse 2 of the righteous man, the text reads, he enters into peace. That phrase uh, you occasionally read in an obituary, rest in peace. It's only true of the Christian. His soul is at peace with God. Any other soul is not at peace at all. It suffers torment throughout all time. Irreversible torment. Total unrest. The soul of the unrighteous man or woman or boy or girl will be agitated throughout eternity. Only of the Christian can it be said, rest in peace. The word speaks to be made whole and well-being. No one, by the way, understands this, I think, in the greatest, most significant senses than the Apostle Paul. Something about his words that are utterly majestic as they remind us of the grandeur of what God does for those who are loyal to him and who have trusted in his Son for everlasting salvation. If you have your New Testaments, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. For we know that the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Reference, of course, is to death. Uh, using the metaphor, the comparison, or the contrast between what is transient and impermanent and permanence. While we are yet alive in this life, our life is like a tent. Uh, the Christian man or woman who dies uh, goes to a permanent dwelling, a building made by God. When I was younger, I used to enjoy camping. And you know the story, even if you don't enjoy it, at least you've read about it. You go someplace, you pick a site, uh, you get out your tent, you unravel it, uh, you, you stake it, and uh, you erect it, and there it is. And uh, for the most part, it's uh, semi-permanent, but uh, at some point you break camp and you go home. That's the way our lives are, uh, that we live in a tent. And someday in the providence of God, he will call us home. And uh, we will break camp, and we will go into eternity, and there enter into a building made without hands. In other words, permanent, indestructible, that can never be destroyed, that never has to be torn down, because there's no better place to go. I was always on the quest for a better view, a better lake, a better pond, a better place to fish. Once you enter as a Christian into eternity, there's no better place to go. And by the way, I don't think there's fishing either. Uh, I don't think there's sliding into home plate or singing a song. Uh, I don't think God rejoices. He simply calls his people home, and that is the greatest bliss of all time. That the grating fishing hole in all the world breaks an utter insignificance and disdain compared to the Christian man or woman or boy or girl who enters into the presence of the all-glorious, loving God for all eternity. The Christian enters a heavenly city that is permanent perfection, indestructible, never to be torn down. And the gates of hell can never, ever break against it. Then the Apostle Paul, in the latter part of verse 2, shifts his metaphor to garments.
In this house we groan, longing to be clothed with a dwelling from heaven, inasmuch as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. Has the idea of uh, pulling one garment over another to take its place. The Christian man or woman enters eternity and he puts on glory, displacing the temporal, and the substitution will last forever. Eternal glory. It's an incredible thought. So much so that there's no complete, full way to describe all that it means. If we but understood a modicum of what that means, we would all rush to the places where God is proclaimed to learn more about it. But again, in our culture, we little care. It's no big deal. But for the righteous man who puts on glory, it's the greatest of all possible events, the greatest venue of all time. To know Jesus Christ is to hold the one ticket of all time. It's not just a seasonal event either. It lasts forever. It is a fashion cut and sewn in heaven where it is never out of style, never out of place. And the Apostle Paul says something radical. We shall never be found naked. Perhaps an allusion to the fall of Adam and Eve. When they fell, they knew, they knew they were naked and they were ashamed. We will never be ashamed. The word shame never falls to the Christian man. He will not be ashamed, the psalmist tells us over and over again. Because we belong to the Savior and He owns us and He clothes us with the garments that He purchased in His shed blood. And that we are vindicated, of course, for all time in everlasting glory. Now, my friend, that's a significant event because it's the greatest event of all time in the sense of the temporalness of life to enter into eternity into an indestructible dwelling place clothed by the everlasting God in eternal love. We're a fashion-conscious society. We're always going to the store, are we not, to replace our shoes or our trousers or our blouses or whatever the case might be. Hats, I don't know. Some people in our culture are more attuned to those things I'll leave that to your own discretion. But I will tell you that God clothes us in everlasting joy. A joy that will never run out. A joy that will never, ever be empty. We will drink from that cup forever and it will never let us go. That, my friend, is a significant event. The unrighteous man doesn't have a clue that that is occurring because of his own spiritual insensitivities. To him, it's no big deal. It's another death. But the scripture is quite firm that death is more than a biological event. It's a spiritual event. When you know the Savior, He owns you. He calls you unto Himself. Makes you His. And He will never let you go. So the righteous man enters peace. His soul is at rest. Beyond peace, the prophet tells us that the righteous man will rest upon their beds. It's a metaphor for graves. You see, before the coming of Christ, uh, the body of the righteous man, if you will, lies down in his grave. But he's at peace because his spirit, his soul is in 
Pardon me in heaven. God will reclaim the body when he comes again. Uh, but again, the soul is at peace because it belongs to the Lord and is in heaven. Uh, the word rest, interestingly enough, in Scripture is uh, something of a metaphor for salvation. Uh, all through the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. There remains, therefore, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Let us, therefore, be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall through following the same example of disobedience. Be diligent to protect and to preserve the soul, to believe into Jesus Christ, and to participate in His Word, all that it sanctions us and does not sanction. To be diligent to enter into that rest, lest we give evidence that we are not the people of faith and know not the Savior, know not the grandeurs and the glories of the greatness of the Spirit of God who makes us new. What follows uh, uh, the rest of the grave of the righteous man is a final great contrast that really constitutes a, a philosophy of life. That the righteous man who walked in a straight path. A straight way, it's a reference to, again, the end-time exodus, that you and I are on the path of God ending eternity. Uh, our path is straight uh, because God has made it so. I'm not suggesting it's an easy path, but it's made straight by God in His Word. Uh, something of this in the book of the Revelation, uh, chapter 14, and the 13th verse. John writes, I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They will rest from their labors. What a great text. Blessed are all who die in the Lord. You see, the, the unrighteous man does not die in the Lord. He dies outside of the Lord. And that, my friend, is a howling wilderness of eternal peril, agitation, anxiety, and total, total, absolute unrest. We could really reverse that verse, could we not, and say, cursed are all those who die outside of the Lord. It's a marker of everlasting danger. We don't think in those terms. We're too worried about cancer and uh, dying in an automobile accident or being in a nuclear war. Oh, that we had a greater concern for the spiritual side of life and the great words of the Apostle John, blessed are all who die in the Lord. My friend, if you are not a Christian, you know not the Savior, ponder those words. Reread the great poet, therefore never sin to know for whom the bells toll. They toll for thee as a reminder that all who die in the Lord are blessed forever. So blessed they would never come back. They have reached the eternal end and the joy of the faith.
It's a reminder that how you live determines how you die and what follows forever. Verses 1 and 2, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to us of a righteous man. How he lives his life and how he dies and what happens to him upon death. It's a successful life. It gives no mention of his physical station in life, whether he was a great athlete, a rich man, a banker, or a carpenter, or a butcher, or a baker, or a candlestick maker. All that the text references is he died in the Lord, and therefore he has achieved the greatest success of all time. And anyone who dies outside of the Lord has achieved the greatest, starkest, most troubling failure of all time. And that is where the prophet now takes us, uh, beginning in the third verse throughout the rest of the paragraph. The failed life. Going to read a number of descriptions of the failed life. If you're not a Christian, you may say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't have to worry about that. But it may not apply to you now, but it will at some point in your life. It's either what you are now or what you will be. Uh, But again, from the perspective of the prophet Isaiah, representing the courts of heaven, it is a failed life of monumental proportion that will end in a place that can never be reversed. Beginning in the third verse. The wicked have a theology of life too. And God summons them. Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 3. Come. It's really a court summons. It's a summons into a courtroom where God is the judge. But he's unlike any judge you and I could ever imagine because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows every thought that has ever crossed your mind. He knows every word that you perhaps thought about speaking but never did. Theological phrase for that is omniscience. But God knows everything actual and eternal in one great event. And my friend, if you're not a Christian, I'd think long and hard about entering that courtroom. Because there's no way you can escape the arguments of the prosecutor. The subpoena of the court papers reads, Son, sons of a sorceress and seed of an adulterer and prostitute. Difficult words. Description is flushed out in the rest of the text. It is the subpoena that applies to all who are outside of Jesus Christ. And it is, it is a reminder that things will not, will not end well for those to whom the subpoena is addressed. It's a charge, a legal charge. Verse four, we begin with the first description. Against whom do you make light? It's either a reference to mocking God or the righteous man. I don't know about you, but having spent 30 years in the army, I knew what it was to be mocked as a Christian. Uh, if you're a high school student and you're a Christian, you're going to be mocked. It's just simply the way that it is. You're going to face the stings of being teased, laughed at. But the judge is now charging those who teased and those who laughed and those who mocked. 
in a very powerful way. If you're a Christian, simply get ready for it. It's nothing new. It happen all of your life. But God knows. And God will charge all who have made light of your faith when they enter His court. Second, you inflame yourselves among the oaks. Now, this is a sexual metaphor. Uh, the word inflame is, marks it uh, as such. Uh, reminder from the scriptures, uh, all throughout the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, certainly chapter 6, that oaks were linked with idolatry. In the ancient Near East, idolatry was often associated with debauched immorality. Uh, the association is so close to immorality that it's often spoken of as a sexual vice in the sense of rejecting one's proper husband who is God for that which is vacuous, empty, and utterly ugly regardless of how it's clothed. Uh, reminded that apostasy is spoken of in the scriptures as a form of utter cheap immorality. I'm reminded in our own culture that this notion is simply everywhere. That pornography, for example, has reached staggering proportions in our culture. It seemingly has infected everything and everyone. I know that's hyperbole, but it is absolutely incredible when you learn of that industry. And terrifyingly what it does to the mind and to the spirit because it degrades everything. And it, of course, degrades the body that God created in His image. And when you cross that line, you're engaging in idolatry of a most debauched form. Because God created the body and ordained it for His glory and marriage for His glory. But again, the unrighteous man just simply sees the world as marrying and giving in marriage as if it's no big deal and time will go on and on and on. But the Bible says it will not. God someday will intervene in radical reward for His children and radical for judgment for those who have made light of what He has created and of course, ultimately His Savior, Jesus Christ. Thirdly, verse 5, He charges them with child sacrifice. Again, one thing that's uh, instructive here, I think, to learn is uh, the religion of Israel in the days of the prophet Isaiah are becoming like the religion of the pagan nations among whom they lived. In other words, they've been doing a lot of cheap borrowing, dancing with a lot of cheap, ugly dates, profaning the name of God and what He was to be in their midst. We do that in our Christian culture today. Uh, we borrow from the world. We mix the story of creation with evolution. Sheer ugliness profanes who God is and what He does. How He works. Again, child sacrifice was associated with idolatry. And they did all of this, Isaiah says, in the valleys and on the mountains and openly and in caves. 
Uh, we don't do it in a religious sense, but we certainly engage in a lot of killing of babies in our culture. In some sense, it is religious. Because any woman who says, my body is my own, has made an idol that's opposed to God. Uh, the Apostle Paul tells us, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Uh, we make an art form out of destroying those words. But again, the numbers are staggering. There ought to be a wake-up call. The paganness of our culture. That life belongs to God and was created in His image. And you efface it at your eternal peril. Thank God, by the way, for forgiveness. The power of the cross to forgive for those who mess with the Word of God. That's the hope of any of us and all of us. That there is forgiveness. That no one really crosses the line till they die. The powerful representation of the message of the gospel. You break the Word of God in whatever form you break it. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Flee to Him. The power of this imagery is compounded for us over and over. I thought, you know, maybe I should put by the text in your bulletin, uh, Isaiah chapter 57, verse 1 to 3, and put a double X by it. Or maybe put an R in parentheses. Some pretty staggering words that are here. Isaiah says, verse 8, the bed. It's the same word as the bed of the righteous man. The righteous man who dies in peace and joy. The former served the one true God and the latter in service to idols as in the language of the prophet Isaiah, prostitutes and whores. Stark language, but that's how Isaiah frames it. The debauchery is that they made their bed wide. Again, the prophet Isaiah made their bed wide, perhaps as a reference to multiple, multiple par partners. Come one and come all. The staggering proportion of the nation of Israel worshiping and serving idols. Fourth verse 9, they sought strange diplomatic alliances to save them. Something of the reference of Psalm 20 verse 7. Some trust in princes, pardon me, chariots, and some trust in horses. Israel would say, well, you know, we don't have a great military power. Let's go make an alliance with Egypt and go make an alliance with Babylon. They've got great military power and they've got great chariots and great horsemen. The psalmist says some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Scriptures mock the nation for trusting in foreign alliances when God was their God who controls all the armies that have ever marched and navies that have ever sailed because of who he is. Psalm 118. The psalmist says, don't trust in man. Trust in God. Don't trust in princes. Trust in God. He's the only one who is sure and certain. It's true to his word. The last charge in my own mind is the most painful of all. Verse 11. When you lied and did not remember me. It's a nation of Israel. They were birthed in the Exodus by the power of God. They were fed by God, watered by God in the wilderness, protected by God with all of the judges that he sent to them, the prophets that he gave to them, 
the great promise of the coming of the servant son, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. They did not remember him. Reminded every time I read this notion that the vast majority of high school students, when they leave home, forget God and forget the church, never to return. Painful words. But they don't always have to be true. They can always come back while there's still time. Before they've crossed the final great threshold from which there is no return. You lied and did not remember me. You did not set me upon your heart. It's a reminder that to forget God is a perilous life that will not end well. So what happens to this life? Isaiah says, uh, judgment, uh, judgment will come. Verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. Again, in our culture, we make an art form of doing good deeds. We, we do such good deeds and spend money on such things that they name buildings after us. They name marathon races after us. I don't know what else they name, but it goes on and on and on. All the righteous things we do, but outside of Jesus Christ, God says, God says they will not profit you. You cannot buy God off with your works and your savings, your investments. You cannot deed him wealth for which he would take notice and appreciate it. Because he traffics in none of those things. They mean nothing to him. You cannot buy a soul that doesn't belong to Jesus Christ with the things of this world. No profit whatsoever. It's a reminder that there is judgment. It's a reminder that maybe we ought to think a little bit more about death in our culture. Maybe we ought to remember the words of the poet. Don't send to know for whom the sirens were blaring. Because they're a reminder of your life outside of Jesus Christ and what will happen. And that God will take no notice of the things that you did, good or otherwise, because you're outside the Savior. The problem is, Clearly stated by the prophet Isaiah, verse 13, your collection of idols, cry to them all you want, they will not deliver you. The wind will carry them all away. Again, these are the idols that they're going up to the tree stands in the mountains to worship and to engage in their immoral acts, seemingly to please whatever God they think they're worshiping. When eternity comes, your idols will not deliver. I love the reminder, uh, Isaiah chapter 46, the seventh verse. Uh, they lift it upon their shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Reminder that everything about this text, if you have to carry your God, it's not God. Because God doesn't need to be carried. The point of the reality is that if you're a Christian, God is carrying you. And if God needs you to carry him, he's not God. But our God and the majesty of his greatness carries us all throughout life to deliver us to the everlasting shores of eternal joy and peace. When you put your hopes and dreams in everything but God, it will not end well. Uh, in fact, it's really much, much worse than this because idolatry is a transformational event that begins to make you over. 
That's the point of uh, our call to worship this morning, Psalm 115. Uh, All who worship idols will become like them. Stark reminder that life is a spiritual event. And when you worship false gods, which include yourself, will change your life and change your soul and destroy everything that you could ever imagine that you might desperately need to believe and to hope in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So words of the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 1, three times, of the idolatry of the losses of man that God gave them over to lust, to passions, to a depraved mind. God gave them over three times, Paul says, of the sterling reminder of the dangers of spiritual destruction by worshiping false gods. Paul, in the section that begins in Romans chapter 1, is reminding all creation of the lostness of man, of the total lostness of man, and the totality of his need for a Savior, captured for us the Apostle Paul, Romans chapter 2, in the first verse. Therefore you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. The reminder that all are under judgment. And then chapter 3 and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that all have failed and come short. Again, the lostness of man. Those of you who are students of the book of Romans know that the Apostle Paul eventually turns to the only hope, and that is Jesus Christ. It is a perilous path to reject God. It's a perilous path to worship strange gods, to worship yourself. Because it does not end well. Remind you of the introduction to the Psalter, Psalm 1. The righteous man is like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He will bear his fruit in its season, and his leaf will not wither. You know what follows? But the wicked are not so. The wind will blow them away like the chaff. But the wicked are not so. The righteous man is a tree, but the wicked man is not so. He'll be cut down. His fruit will dry and the wind will blow it away. Psalm 73, verse 17. The psalmist is troubled over the physical blessings that accrue to ungodly men. Then he goes to church and the text reads, and then I perceive their end. That God will set them in slippery places. Great reminder of uh, great Christian theologian Jonathan Edwards writes his Famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, based upon Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. God will set them in slippery places. They think they will stand for a season, but they will slip and they will fall. Never ever to recover. Never ever to be raised again. Never ever to come back. That God will set their feet in slippery places. You know what God says of the righteous man? to him who will keep you from stumbling. It's my favorite doxology of all of the scriptures. 
referencing the power and the ability of the one true God that you and I live in a slippery world. But God in his power will keep us from stumbling because of Jesus Christ our Savior. Great promise of all the scripture. We live in a slippery world, but not so for the Christian. God makes our path straight and will see us through to the end. That the storm of judgment will not get at us. The gift of God, Paul says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, is eternal life through, through Jesus Christ our Lord. You're not a Christian. You have a perilous path in front of you. Through Christ, you can reverse it. Flee to Him. Sue for peace. He will make your path straight. He will watch over you and guard you, keep you from stumbling. Uh, the text here ends in a great invitation. In the midst of the perilous description of the nation of Israel, even of our own culture, God ends in grace. 57.13 He who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and shall possess my holy mountain. To take refuge in God, you will inherit eternity and possess his dwelling place. Now, one of my favorite psalms is that I think of a warrior. He goes upon the field of battle. It's a dangerous place. Now, perhaps you know it as Psalm 91. Three times we have this metaphor. Psalm 91, verse 2. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. He's the only refuge in life against eternal ruin and slipping away, falling into judgment. Verse 4, under his wings you may seek refuge. Lastly, verse 9, if you have made the Lord my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place, no evil will befall you. Reminded of this every time I drive by a fire station. You know they have that little sign on there that it's a safe place to a child maybe or to maybe someone that's battered. People all over our culture are trying to build safe places against the storms that will eventually come in Oklahoma. I'm not saying that's wrong, but nonetheless, trying to find a safe place. Uh, when I was a kid in high school, it was build bomb shelters to protect you from nuclear war. I don't know. All types of refuge. Places of safety. All of those things in and of themselves are not wrong. They're good to a certain extent. But the only real refuge in eternity is in God himself. You want to build a safe refuge from spiritual ruin, you flee to the Savior. He covers you with his wings. He hides you by his power. He protects you from any evil that might ever befall you. And you will be in his hands forever safe, delivered to eternal joy. It is an invitation that if the descriptions that I've read are markers of your life to flee to Christ, because outside of him there is a howling wilderness of which there is no recovery. That's the contrast of this text. The righteous man who dies in peace and the unrighteous man who dies in eternal unrest. They each begin, they each end with defined outcomes. One ends well, 
and the other incongruity. It's a call to wisdom, ladies and gentlemen, to ponder death while you still have life. The words of the psalmist teach us to number our days, O God, that we might apply our hearts to wisdom. And this is wisdom. If you know not Jesus Christ and His saving power, you're in a perilous way. You're facing eternal ruin and destruction. And may God in His marvelous, immutable, eternal, beautiful saving power see you safety, see you safely into Jesus Christ who will guard you throughout your life to your eternal home in everlasting joy. It's interesting, is it not, that the prophet reminds us of the godly man. His life is outcome. And he reminds us of the evil man. And then he issues an invitation. Perhaps it's your invitation to come to Christ. Forsake your religions. Follow him. Promise of scripture. It will end beautifully, majestically, in a way that your wildest imagination could ever describe. It's the life of the Christian, a life of those who have placed their hope and faith in Jesus Christ with the full knowledge that without Him, all is lost. And may God be gracious to each of us to find us in the Lord, safe on the path to eternity in total, irrevocable glory and joy.